Welcome to Radio KBPV, Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, a podcast about the history of southwestern Alberta, presented by Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village of Pincher Creek, a museum complex that documents the stories of Western Canada's agricultural settlement through the preservation of local buildings and artifacts among a six-acre park. Pincher Creek is a town of 3,700 souls in a vast rural trading area of some 3,000 rural dwellers. A vibrant region of rolling prairie, foothills, the Rocky Mountains, the Pecani First Nation, Waterton Lakes National Park, the Crow's Nest Pass, and the Upper River Watershed of the South Saskatchewan River Basin. Join us in this podcast where we present walking tours of our buildings and hear the stories of the farmers, townsmen, cowboys, mounties, pioneer women, politicians, chroniclers, miners, railroaders, and so many other significant histories of this particular corner of Canada. Hi, Ranger Gord here, uh, Radio KBPV. Today I'm going to offer you something just a little bit different and possibly, if you could indulge me, it's a little self-serving, but um, the podcast is a bit old, at least the, the podcast recording that I'm going to show you today is a little bit old, at least five years. Uh, I did this podcast shortly after I began employment in Pincher Creek at uh, Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, and but it really relates to a former employment and I guess a former life that I had and a, and a very personal project that I once did. It's uh, a book called Healy's West, The Life and Times of John J. Healy, and what I'm going to play for you today is an interview that was done for me on another podcast, so I guess this is a bit of a crossover, called The History Author Show, which is hosted by a, a man by Dean Carianis uh, from New York City. So that's why you'll hear the, the New York theme as it comes on. Dean normally does uh, interviews with people on uh, American history subjects, but my book Healy's West actually does dovetail in with American history, primarily Montana, and also Alaska and Washington State as well. Uh, Healy's relationship to Southern Alberta and into Pincher Creek was of a a, a cross-border nature. He was the builder of Fort Whoop-Up. And when I say my former employment, I was once the historian at the uh, Fort Whoop-Up interpretive site in uh, Lethbridge, which is now operated by the Galt Museum. That's a whole other story. But amongst uh, Healy's life, he also had relationships with our own Kootenay Brown. In fact, he saved his li- Kootenay's life. And I do talk about that in the book. Yes, my uh, doing this, I guess, is a little bit self-serving. Uh, we do have a author's book night coming up, but I hope you'll come out when see me and not just talk about my book but also the several other authors that we will have coming out and I shouldn't call it an author's night previously it has been an author's night but uh, um, dude one time only we're going to switch it to Friday and that's uh, in 1 to 5 p.m. in the afternoon of uh, Friday November 20th and it will be actually occurring in um, the main uh, exhibit, the Reg Beer Hall, 
in uh, Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village, rather as opposed to being into the main building. And that's that's to do with the uh, the COVID situation and social distancing and such. But I, I do. I guess I'm taking this space right now to kind of help promote that, but also just because I have this sitting around, it hasn't done anything for a while. Not not the book, but the podcast itself. And Dean uh, always said, use this to promote however you have. So now I have Radio KBPV, and I am the sort of the primary on uh, this uh, podcasting project of the, of the museum. So, yeah, I'm going to toot my own horn, but I had a good friend when I first started to get things published said, if you don't toot your own horn, nobody else will. So, at the risk of uh, being called arrogant and tooting my own horn, I present to you now my author, our history author show with Dean Carianis and my interview with him from December of 2015 and uh, appearance on the History Author Show to discuss the book Healy's West, which is available at uh, Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village. Signed copies are available, and I, I think you'll enjoy the book, actually. And there are several other local authors that you should be supporting, too, uh, from our bookshop there at the village. So without further ado, here is Healy's West. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. You can also catch us on iTunes, Spreaker, Player FM, and many other personal audio outlets. You can even tune us in on the iHeartRadio app or in the dashboard of many new model car stereos where you can listen to iHeartRadio just like you listen to any other radio. Of course, today we're not driving a car, but a time machine. One built into a covered wagon, the kind that crisscrossed the great North American West before the railroad could quite make it there. We're going all the way up to the Yukon and Alaska territories, as well as Montana and the great Canadian province of Alberta. That's where we'll find our conductor on this journey, Gordon E. Tolton. He's a Western Canadian historic interpreter and author of the previous books, The Cowboy Cavalry and Prairie Warships. His latest book is Healy's West, The Life and Times of John J. Healy, who's really a man with a lot to teach us and a fascinating character. You almost don't even believe he's real. You can join Gordon's Facebook group, Ranger Gord's Publications, for discussion of Western Canadian history and some self-described goofball humor. Follow our guest on Twitter at rmranger, and check out his blog, rangergordsroundup.wordpress.com. Finally, it's worth noting that Healy's West is dual-published on both sides of the 49th parallel, by Heritage House of Victoria, B.C. in the Great White North, and by Mountain Press of Missoula, Montana, all across our southern fruited plain that John Healy loved so well. 
Born in 1840, the Great Hunger, or Potato Famine, drove John Healy's family out of Ireland when he was just a boy. But their surname evolved from the old Gaelic word meaning ingenious, clever, or survivor. And survive John J. Healy did. From after the American Civil War and up through the Gilded Age, this unique explorer, salesman, and sheriff became both a legendary hero and a controversial black hat. A man who never shied from a gun or a challenge, whether panning for gold, wearing a badge, or taming a Mustang. Honestly, the man did such incredible things it's easy to confuse him with a character from a pulp novel or Gunsmoke. But Healy lived adventures in real life that Matt Dillon, sorry Marshall, only flirted with in fiction. And yet, history in Hollywood never told Healy's story. Until now. Here's my conversation with Gord Tolton on one of the most influential figures of the Western movement, John J. Healy. I'm on the line with Gord Tolton, who's joining us from southern Alberta, Canada, about an hour north of the Montana border. Ranger Gord, as he's known, is in the perfect spot, geographically speaking, on this great continent of ours to discuss his book. It's called Healy's West, The Life and Times of John J. Healy. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on, Dean. As people may have seen on Twitter, I post every now and then at History Dean, my account, a stack of books that are going to be on the History Author Show, ones I've sort of gone through. Sometimes one really jumps out in the sense that you don't have those sorts of expectations for it. You sent me this book and I saw this sort of mustachioed figure on the cover and I, I really didn't expect much from it. I thought, well, he'll be an interesting historical figure, probably sort of a local hero. Then I start reading about him, and it is incredible that he's so little known when he did so much. It, there's so many moments I'm reading Healy's West on the subway or on the bus, and I'm saying, oh, come on, how did he do this? Another amazing escape from bandits or another time when he just smacks a gun out of a guy's hand or another business adventure that he just jumps on. He was an amazing man, wasn't he? Yes, and I believe some of the reasons that we've kind of gotten lost of him, I, I believe at an earlier time, probably in the, I'll say the 1950s, 60s, 70s, you know, the public imagination with Westerns was quite high. There was lots of movies, lots of television shows, and a lot of uh, magazines and popular fiction and nonfiction out about many historic characters. And in those days, people used to devour people like John J. Healy. But I feel like over the last few years, you know, the Western has kind of faded away. We've gotten much more urbanized, much more rushed and digitalized and globalized, I guess, all the eyes that you can think of. And I guess our frontier history, you know, especially the parts that aren't, you know, particularly politically correct have started to fall between the cracks again. Unfortunately, Healy being on the lower end, not being as famous as a Buffalo Bill or a Jesse James has really fallen under the radar. I think we maybe wrongly tend to overlook them as a society. I enjoy this period and people sort of stop paying attention after the Civil War and Lincoln and just sort of wait until Theodore Roosevelt pops on the scene in 1901 or 1898, if you want to talk about the Spanish-American War. But there was a lot happening. I mean, this is really the period of the expansion across North America by Canada and the United States. 
And all in your book, you have a bunch of maps there, and they show a bunch of these great fort names. I mean, here in New York and New Jersey, obviously, we have Fort Washington, Fort Lee, Fort Greene. We have a bunch of forts, but these have great names. And one of them that I want to start with is Fort Whoop-Up. Tell our listeners what's there. They can still go visit it today, as you might know from it being a National Historic Site. What do they find when they visit, and how did your path cross with John Healy's there? Well, Fort Whoop-Up is sort of a historical icon here in southern Alberta, and it's well known across northern Montana as well. It was the first permanent settlement in the Canadian prairies anywhere south of what is now the city of Edmonton or west of the city of Winnipeg. Uh, It was said that you could travel from Winnipeg to the mountains and not see anything until you run into Fort Whoopa. And it was the other way coming from the United States. Now, what is there today in Lethbridge, Alberta? I have been um, involved with the Fort Whoopa National Historic Site for well over excess of 25 years as a volunteer and a board member, even an employee for a time. And for a few years, I actually called myself the official historian of Fort Whoopa. Now, what is there right now? There is a recreation of the original trade fort that Healy built on Canadian territory in uh, 1869. He had possession of it until 1876 to win into uh, other hands. And it's a recreation of the entire cross-border fur trade, the buffalo robe trade. This is the days of, of the buffalo robe being high. And the tourist site has a lot of different interpretive things. It also talks about the First Nations of uh, southern Alberta, which primarily would have been what we called the Nitsitapi, and that is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The American side, for some reason, they called it the Blackfeet, but it consisted of three tribes in a linguistic group, the Pecani, the Blood, and the Siksika, and they were all known to have traded at Fort Whoopup. And so at the site today, there is great appreciation of that culture there, and you can see a lot of different artifacts, particularly from the Blood Nation, which is the, the closest reserve next to Lethbridge, Alberta, and the largest reserve in Canada. They are also more than a tangential relationship to the Northwest Mounted Police, which today is world famous as the Canadian Mounties, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that is known today. So everybody knows about the red coats and everything else. Well, at Fort Whoopup, one of the things I like to say is we inspired the Mounted Police <laughs> by inspiration, meaning um, they came for a visit, but they weren't coming to visit. They were actually coming to raid it and shut it down. <laughs> and we can get into that a little bit later on as we get into Healy's role in it as the proprietor of this fort. This really is a wild time, and yet when I was reading about John Healy, he's not a one-dimensional character. He did these amazing things where you're saying, oh, come on, or I was when I was reading Healy's West anyway, but he's not a cartoon character. He grows, he evolves. He, You have a nice paragraph there in the book where he talks about how he's trying to track some people and how he's learned from the native people how to sort of watch things. If you see a bird suddenly turn to the right, it means because it sees something down there and it's flying away from it and this kind of thing. You really sort of take this journey with him throughout your book where you're evolving too, I guess you'd say. You're learning not to maybe kind of condescend to people who lived back then and see them as one-dimensional characters. Not only do the forts have great names back then, but of course you run into many of these great Native American names. One of them is a fellow named Bull Backfat, which I think takes us back to Fort Whoopup, one of these times when Healy seems to have all guns pointed at him and no way out, and he must be facing certain death. So tell that story. 
Well, the name of Bull's Back Fat actually dates back. It was actually a hereditary name. It was almost like royalty amongst the Blood Nation. Hmm. I believe it was Bullback's Fats. Either father or grandfather was seen at Fort Union in what is now in uh, North Dakota. And he was painted by Catlin. And so this was almost seen as royalty. And when Healy comes to Fort Whoopup, it's often said that he came across the border and they just threw up this illegal fort. And then they filled the place full of whiskey, which they did. And then the Mounties had to come along and rescue the First Nations from themselves. You know, so that's part of the great Canadian myth. Um, you know, we're driving out the evil Americans. Well, that's, as you've probably gathered from my book, it's not quite the case. Uh, you know, it's the old fact of print the story or print the legend. With Healy, we've got both the story and the legend. Now, Bull's Back Fat, when Healy runs into him, it's on the time in 1869 when Healy is actually on his way from Sun River, Montana to found the site that will be later Fort Whoopup along with his partners Alfred B. Hamilton and a few others. It's really interesting uh, what time of year he leaves Montana to go north this 200 and some miles to Canada. He leaves on December 27th. He's not in a sled. He's not in a skidoo. He's not in a helicopter. He is taking <laughs> oxen and horse-driven wagons across the prairie. And you're saying to yourself, gosh, it's got to be the middle of the winter. Well, that speaks to something, a phenomenon that many people that don't live in this area don't know of. If you don't live in southern Alberta, northern Montana, you might never have heard of something called the Chinook. And a Chinook is a winter weather phenomenon, a prevailing southwest wind that comes off the Oregon coast, that we tend to call it the snow eater here. Now, don't get me wrong, we do get winter here from time to time, but in southern Alberta, it tends to be a little bit more moderated because of the prevailing winds of the Chinook. So you can get open winters here. I've cooked turkey outside on my fire pit on Christmas Day in my shirt sleeves. You know, that's, that's what tends <laughs> wow. to happen in this part of the area. So Healy, when he's deciding to leave, he's not in fear of the weather at this point in time. He knows it'll close in, don't get me wrong, he's not wasting time. As he goes across uh, through part of northern Montana, not too far away from uh, what is the city of Shelby in Montana, he runs into a band of bloods who have been out hunting. Now, because of the Chinook and because it has been an open winter, the game is up in the foothills. It's up in the mountains. So deer or anything that can be hunted is not in the area. And when he comes across Bullback Fat and his small band, he knows this man. He's met him before, and they're in pretty dire straits because they have run out of game. And Healy, you know, you, know, you always have these stories, you know, about uh, the, the wagon trains meeting up with the natives. Well, this is completely different. They don't circle the wagons. Healy stops, and he throws open the back of the sheet, and he gets out some bacon and some beans and whatever you need. And just, we will feed you until we get back to your homeland. And this impresses bull's back fat a lot, and there's two words I have to say, and that's a brownie point. Because <laughs> bull's back fat is a hereditary chief of the blood, and he's got a lot of influence. Previous to this founding of Whoopup, if you're of the blood or of the Blackfoot, there's two ways you trade. You go all the way to the Missouri River to what is called Fort Benton, Montana, or you can go all the way north to the trade with the Hudson's Bay Company in Edmonton. And for several decades, it has been a no-go zone to go to what is called the Old Man River or the Belly River country. That was home territory, and the, the bloods were known to be fierce there. Very few people ever tried to live there. 
This is what Healy was going in there. He was going in with this fearsome attitude. But Healy is smart enough to know that you make contacts, you make trades, you make deals. And it is every intention of mine that uh, Healy was not only made these deals to be able to enter this territory, but also that he was very likely invited. And this incident tells me that Bull's back fat actually selected the site for him to go <laughs> to build his new trading post. He wanted that trade on home territory. The buffalo robe is now a commodity, and the Bloods have learned that we can get things in trade that will help make our lives easier. It's like he's bringing a Walmart into town where there has <laughs> never been so much as a corner store before. And he does better than Target did in Canada, which recently closed up shop there. My in-laws live in Winnipeg, and they said there was never really anything on the shelves. But Healy never seems to have had that problem. He seems to have sort of, in the book, you say, got there before the people somewhere they were going and then started selling tickets. And he so many times runs into the same people you want to say characters because, again, it reads so much like a novel, and yet these are real people. And he does have his back against the wall at that one point, and Bull's back fact comes there and says to the other nations that you're going to have to shoot and kill me and all of my guys if you want to get to these white men and kill them because they fed us when we were hungry. And it's just an amazing moment. He escapes death so many times in his life, does Healy. And it all happened right where you live. I, I don't know how many people in America anyway are familiar with your great Canadian sitcom, Corner Gas, but <laughs> I mentioned to you in the email that as an American, other than my wife, who now is an American citizen, so we had to rewatch Corner Gas. I like to say I used to be married to a Canadian. <laughs> anyway, it was filmed there in your neighboring province of Saskatchewan, not far, you said, from where your father was born. Is that correct? That's correct. It's the Weyburn, Saskatchewan area, which ideally is actually not not too far away from Fort Union, North Dakota as well. Yeah, my father was born there in 1928 in Yellowgrass, Saskatchewan. And Yellowgrass is significant in that it holds the record as Canada's hottest temperature there, about 42 degrees Celsius, which I think it translates to about 120 degrees Fahrenheit in uh, the 1930s, which says a lot for why uh, my father's family didn't stay there for too long and moved <laughs> a little further west. Yeah, the temperature you were saying, and you're saying about Celsius and Fahrenheit, I was thinking that before when you said in the U.S. we call them the Blackfeet, and you have a different name for them in Canada, and I thought you were going to say the Black Meters. But anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to use that one, Dean. <laughs> <laughs> I get to use all my Canadian-American jokes now. Also, speaking of Corner Gas, there is an excellent act in it who happens to be a member of the Cree, Lauren Cardinal. Uh, what's been the reaction of the First Nations to Healy's West and the man himself when they're sort of driving through? As you said, when you're driving from Winnipeg to BC, people are passing Fort Whoop up. Uh, what has their reaction been? Well, it, it's really interesting because amongst his escapades, Healy actually saves the life of a young boy in a raid on his trading post while they're still in Montana. And he raises this boy on his own. And very likely, according to my research, he is the first person of the Blood Nation to ever learn to read and write the English language. And he calls him Joe. And Joe goes back to the Blood people. I could almost write another book on Joe himself because he becomes kind of a found a police scout and an interpreter and a traitor amongst the Bloods themselves. And to this day, the, the name Healy quite resounds out on the Blood Reserve. And it's interesting, I was uh, doing signings shortly after the book was released last year, 
and I had native people named Healy coming up and asking me about Johnny, because why why do we have this huh. Irish name? You know. Yeah. And um, one of them happened to be a, a man named Gordon Fox, who was married to a Healy, and I have known him for years. And I happened to walk in, I run into him on the street one day, and he shook my hand. And he says, "I got your book." He says, "I thought it was amazing." So. Yeah, the First Nations, like I said, had a relationship with Fort Whoopup that I don't think has ever been quite documented as before into this book or by our interpretive programs at the fort itself. And um, that reaction is seen because to this day at the fort, the blood people still come and they still shop at our little gift shop down there. We sell you know, powwow and costuming supplies and sweet grass and things like that. And they're come 150 years later. They're still coming to Fort Whoop up the butt of the shop. <laughs> Testament to Healy knowing to put it in the right place. Him and Bull's back fat. I guess they they picked a good spot. So, uh, one of the other things other than trade that drew Healy westward and up north into Yukon and eventually Alaska was gold. This is the era of people hitting the mother load and finding gold and panning, which Healy does, of course. You say, again, that he'd get where people were going before they did, and he was always sort of had his ear to the ground. They used to say of William McKinley, he had his, kept his ear so close to the ground that he had crickets in it. And <laughs> that kind of a guy where he was always watching for the next sort of big thing. There's a photograph on the back of your book, and there's a bunch inside of it, including one very old one of Fort Whoopup in its heyday, I guess you'd say. And it shows a store, Healy and Wilson. I wanted to ask you to describe briefly what what do we find if we step into that store and we're sort of looking to provision ourselves? What what are the sorts of things that he would sell when he's just kind of a retailer there? Well, he was more than a retailer. And when he went to uh, Healy and Wilson is at the uh, start, was the first store at the place called uh, Daye in Alaska. It's not too far away from the place that would eventually be Skagway. And in fact, predated Skagway by several years. It was a Tlingit fishing village at the base of the Chilkoot Pass. Healy goes there in 1886. And if you were to step in that store, I don't believe you could step too far without bumping into something. Stores like that just tended to be full of stuff. Uh, Anything that he could possibly sell. When he originally goes there, and uh, I'm not sure if I if I got this straight in my book, but I've been saying it in all of my the talks I've been doing ever since the book was released, that I believe that Healy and Wilson's store was his second attempt at Fort Whoopup to get it right. Um, he sort of learns the things that he did right and the things he did wrong, and he comes in as a businessman. But once again, he's going to a place where no white trader has been before. No white trader had gone into that neck of the woods as far as the Lynn Canal of Alaska um, coming in off of the Panhandle. And as I said, it's at the base of the Chilkoot Pass, and this is 1886. And if anybody has any recollection of the chronology of the Great Klondike Gold Rush, you can spot that he's there a good 10 years before that Klondike Gold Rush starts. And that is very significant because I think he knew it was going to happen. Healy had been a, a, a gumboot prospector before in his youth, in his early, early 20s, and he almost starved to death doing it. And I believe in one of his escapades in Idaho, when he almost starved to death, um, 
he would the metal would never again rule the man. Uh, he would not lead rudderless expeditions looking for gold, but essentially he would find other reasons to be in a place where he thought there was a mining prospect, and trading was one of them. Now, first, of course, he's trading with the Tlingit. And at this point in time, there is a small trickle of prospectors going into what is now the Canadian territory of the Yukon, at what is now Dawson City, and also on that Yukon-Alaska border area on the Yukon River. And they, somebody knows there's going to be gold there. There is one company that has been up there called the Alaska Commercial Company. But Healy just knows something's going to happen. He, you know, he can almost smell it. But he, rather than him being the miner, him being the man standing in the creek yelling Eureka, he wants to be the guy that's selling the gumboots on the feet of the man yelling Eureka. He <laughs> wants to be selling the pans. He wants to be selling the beans, the provisions, the, the horseshoes on the mules, you name it. And the snowshoes, you know, all the provisions, because you go up into there, you're going to need one year's of supplies just to survive. And that's an edict that the Mounties later uh, later was a strict edict. Once you crossed uh, the Chilkoot Pass, if you didn't have one year's of supplies, you got turned back. And Healy and Wilson is down at the bottom. He's the guy that's going to be selling you the uh, selling you the goods. And he's kind of selling you a piece of the dream, really. Exactly. He's selling people the ability to chase their dream. And it's worth noting that he'd almost starved to death as a young child in the Irish potato famine, the great hunger, as they call it there. So he finding himself in that situation twice, no laughing matter. And he wisely decided he wasn't going to risk, again, falling prey to dying of starvation. Famine is a theme, that t and using food as a weapon at times and the the scarcity of famine is something he carries with him all his life. He never loses that, even at one point where he almost, uh, well, I guess I can get ahead of the story. But essentially, uh, to, just to get back to uh, Helian Wilson back for a minute, he also brokers deals with the Tlingit natives because they are, the, the, the Tlingits are really interesting, and I don't know if Healy taught them or if they learned it on their own, but they've learned capitalism. And they had learned how to corner a market. If you're going to go up the Chilkoot Map Pass, it's pretty much a straight walk up a mountain and uh, into that area. But you're not going to carry your own goods there because the Tlingit have a very strict monopoly. They are packers. They're like the Sherpas of the Yukon. And they're going to take your goods up there very cheerfully, but they're going to do it for several cents a pound. And they'll deal with you on this. Now, Healy gets so ingratiated with the Tlingits to the point of where he and his, his uh, second wife were adopted by the Tlingit. And um, basically, he's their commissioned agent. And uh, nobody takes a ton of goods up the Chilkoot Pass without Healy getting a cut of it. It wet, wet his beak a little bit. He has a lot of those deals. And I thought that the moment we talked about earlier to come back to that, when he gives away that food to those starving tribesmen there with bull's back fat, it would have been very easy to be selfish after you've gone through something like starvation. But he not not only does he help them and feed them and say, I'm going to take care of you, basically help you out here. But 
that saves his life later, as I said, when they stand before him and say, you have to get through us to get to, to Healy and his men. And it really, in this way, the the book reads so much like a novel. It's almost unbelievable. And Hollywood, of course, hasn't made a movie about John Healy. And you could almost see why, because fiction has to make sense, they say. Real life doesn't. And with him, for instance, he's 52, and he's still vaulting over a bar to smack a guy's gun away. And you know he's dealing with horse thieves and rustlers. There was basically a part of him that just was unshootable. It seems like he would stare these men down. And it reminded me of a criminal brought before Andrew Jackson when he was a judge and the man had cut somebody's ears off and he was just a real rough character. And Jackson, I believe, went out and got him himself or dragged him, had him dragged there before the court. And he looked at Jackson and he just backed down. He started behaving himself. And they asked him why after. And he said, well, I looked and the man had shoot in his eyes. So I said to myself, old Hoss, you better, you better start to walk small. And so he did. And that's something about Healy. Tell us about Healy's eyes. Oh, I can tell you about Healy's eye. Uh, Healy <laughs> wasn't a, a, a big man. He was about five foot five. And essentially, people didn't tend to grow up to be that big in those times. Um, if you go to a lot of museums that have done their homework very well, you see that the bunks and the beds are very small. And, you know, there's reasons for that, you know, lack of protein and um, infant, infantile diseases and things like that, which is also a theme in uh, Healy's life because he loses virtually half of his children to, you know, infant death. Um, but as far to get back to the eye, he had some kind of an astigmatism, and you can't see it in all of his pictures, but there is one picture that I insisted upon being in the book, because I did see that as soon as I found that picture in the in Montana Historical Society. He had what is called a lazy eye. And basically, it's just an astigmatism that kept one eye open um, virtually at all times. If he was looking towards the camera, you saw this. You can somewhat see it a little bit in his uh, in his right eye on the cover of the book, but there's another book, a picture inside where it's very pronounced. But that eye apparently would not quiver in any kind of a deal. If you were looking at him over a tray counter or over a desk and you were making him a deal, or if God forbid you were you were found him in the street um, as a lawman, uh, they would say that eyelash would not quiver. To the point that um, the great geologist, Canadian geologist Joseph Terrell, when he met him in the Yukon, called him Captain Deadshot. Um, That's a nice nickname for you. Yeah, well, sir, <laughs> that, of that hypnotic eye, just would just tend to make people uh, back down from anything that they were. And what's really also interesting in Healy is the myth of the gunfighter. You know, and uh, I always have this argument sometimes amongst uh, some Western historians, whether there is such a thing as, you know, the high noon shootouts in the middle of the street and that sort of a thing. And I tend to believe Wyatt probably hit more people with his gun than he ever shot at with him. But <laughs> um, Healy did not walk around like a gunslinger. He had an absolute uh, loathing of that kind of, a, kind of an appearance. He says, I never walked around with a holster and a belt. He says, he says to most people in the street, he says, I was walking around in my shirt sleeves, and he had a motto that says, no one who is sober will gun you down in cold blood. Well, I'm, I'm glad he's not around today. But, uh, um, <laughs> but, but in those times, he felt that there was a certain honor 
that if you just looked at a man and just just yelled at him in a certain way and give him a certain tone, that the guy would back off. And there were times when he'd just walk up and he would just, you know, take the guns right out of people's hands. And most people thought, well, the guy's not armed. But you know what? Yeah. Healy wasn't that stupid. He had a back door always. And he used to keep what he called his little swamp angel. And that was a type of a Hawken uh, Derringer type of pistol that he would keep in his pocket. Anybody that knew him knew that was in his pocket. And I've seen, you know, uh, recollections from other people that always say that, uh, well, everybody thought he was unarmed, but we knew he had that little Hawken in his pocket. And that, uh, in the, the incident with uh, Weaselhead that you were interested in, um, that came into a, uh, a situation where he pulled that Derringer out of his pocket when, uh, when the Weaselhead was going to knife him in an altercation over the trade counter and he took that derringer and just cracked it over the top of his head and then he picked the guy up by the uh, basically the seat of his pants and threw him out the gate of the fort and then they're friends forever yes exactly <laughs> it's just crazy there, like, a few weeks later he came back and there was kind of a duel when yeah. uh, weasel had <laughs> called him out and again, yeah. he walks out of the fort this time. He didn't even take the Derringer. <laughs> and uh, he knew how to judge people. He really, incredibly, knew the right thing in so many of these situations. And he meets so many amazing people who are no slouches in history themselves. He, I started to think of him like Zelig or Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump is the word I always use. Right. You never know when he's going to, you know, anybody in Canadian history, you know, we have our Canadian icons here in Alberta, people like Father Lacombe, Colonel McLeod of the Mounties, Jerry Potts. You know, these are legends to anybody that's listening to this from Alberta. They know those names. Healy knew them all. In fact, Jerry Potts worked for him. He was a hunter for him at Fort Whoopup. Down in the States, he knew Sitting Bull. In fact, he bragged one time to the Mounties. He goes, give me $5,000 and I will shoot Sitting Bull for you. He was not impressed with Sitting Bull one bit. <laughs> well, he seems to be, as I said, a good judge of character. So maybe there's something to it. You have, of course, in Healy's West, that exchange that he witnesses with Sitting Bull. George Armstrong Custer, he's right there in the state when, of course, he has his last stand. Theodore Roosevelt is president when he's pitching his idea for Alaska to connect through a tunnel over to Russia, which we'll talk about a little later. Really an amazing figure is John Healy. If you ever heard the, the Robert Redford movie, Jeremiah Johnson, that was based, yeah, in the song. based on a novel, and it's more a novel than history, of a man named Liberating Johnston. And Johnston was a confederate of Healy's and, and once worked for him. So, you know, there's just these names that just come out of the woodwork. I know one critic said there was a bewildering array of characters, and there are lesser-known names that I kind of live with in my everyday life, like Kootenay Brown. Kootenay Brown was known today as, he's a, another Alberta icon, as one of the first discoverers of oil in Alberta. <laughs> and now Alberta is one of the great huh. oil-producing yeah, places. <laughs> And Kootenay Brown at one time was arrested in Fort Benton, Montana for killing a trader. And Healy just happens to be appointed sheriff about the time while he's in jail. Healy comes in one morning to serve him breakfast. Kootenay Brown, he notices him slumped over on the floor and he's tried to commit suicide. Somehow he's gotten a small knife into the cell and his guilt has gotten away from him. Healy goes in there, saves his life lets him stand trial, and takes his chances on due process. And that's another thing about Healy. 
He was no vigilante. He would stand against vigilantes to make sure that culprits got their due process and their day in court. And often, once a grand jury hit with him, such as in the case of Kootenay Brown, he got off on a stand of self-defense. Kootenay Brown later, well, not much later, he says the sweetest words in the English language are not guilty. (laughs) And he travels back across the Canadian border and he never leaves again. And he becomes the founder of Waterton Lakes National Park which is the Canadian National Park that is right up against Glacier National Park in Montana. My guest is Gord Tolton, and the book is Healy's West, The Life and Times of John J. Healy. You can follow Gord at rmranger on Twitter and visit his blog, rangergordsroundup.wordpress.com. In a review for World History Group's site, historynet.com, which I've enjoyed for many, many years, there's really some great long in-depth history articles there. They reviewed your book, which is very nice. The reviewer, John Gutman, wrote, quote, For those who have never heard of the man, Healy's West should prove enlightening. For those already familiar with Healy, the reward is a further introduction to this unsung Westerner. Since most people fall sort of into that first group, Gord, who have not ever heard of Healy, I wanted to give you a chance to make your best pitch, which you've been doing here with all these sort of exciting Westerner stories. But why should people take the time out of their busy day, as you said, with all these eyes that we have, so many distractions, so many things to go and watch and demands on our attention for work? Why get to know him here today in the 21st century? Well, because he, well, you know what? I'm going to read from my own press here from the back of the book. (laughs) Good idea. When Healy pans for Idaho gold, descends the Missouri River, tames wild Alberta Mustang, stares down Montana outlaws, equips Klondike prospectors, or promotes the untapped potential of Alaska, you can't help but admire this calculating bundle of Celtic dynamite who saw borders as mere lines to cross, great distances as stepping stones and empty prairies or icy oceans as opportunities for exploration. You'll love him, you'll hate him, and you will awaken to a new understanding of an era both invigorating and brutal. And you also write in the book another thing, that he was probably the first credible lawman in Montana. I think you're quoting a contemporary there that says that. It doesn't end so great for him, of course. He has a little debacle there trying to build a jail, but he's always honest, and he has so many misadventures as many as adventures and it seems like he was always very honest but essentially what he tends to do as a lawman um, like i said he's credible lawman but sometimes he's kind of making it up as he goes because as you can imagine the law the county laws and things like that are very sketchy some of his predecessors were not much better than outlaws themselves and some of them had been whiskey traders that had worked for him at least one of them was responsible for a brutal massacre called the Cypress Hills Massacre on Canadian territory. But Haley is the kind of guy who, uh, you know, he had to deal with horse thieves, both white and native, and he had to deal with border situations. And he sometimes had to take, and I said he wasn't a vigilante, but sometimes he had to kind of make things up as he went. Now, there was one incident where he uh, arrested a blood man by the name of Bad Bull, on horse theft incidents. And some of the evidence was a little bit sketchy. And he realized that soon he was going to have to probably release this man. But he wanted to send this guy a message. And he wanted to send a message back to the people, his people in Canada, to stop raiding horses back and forth between Canada and the United States. So what he did was he took this bad bull character 
and he decides before he released him that it's his matter to uh, take care of the hygiene of the jail. So he decides that he needs to give Bad Bull a haircut. And he takes him down to the town barber with his deputies with him. And with the press right in tow, he cut off the man's braids and he gave the braids each to one of his deputies. Now, what he understands here and what I had to understand in my work with the blood people as well, hair is power. That's why they didn't cut it. And braids are especially a part of that hair and how well you kept them. So when he cut off these braids, he was taking this man's power and he was giving them to his deputies. And then when he was done cutting off the braids, he shaved the man bald, took his power completely away from him, then said, oh, you're free to go. <laughs> Boy. And this bad bull, he knew exact, said exactly what Healy had done to him. And he says, he says, next time I see the sheriff on the prairies, I will kill him. But Healy says, no problem. He put him on a wagon, headed back for Canada. And apparently when he got back to his people, he was the subject of ridicule. Bad Bull himself was dead within months, froze to death during the winter. So essentially, yeah, he took care of this man, but he took his power, and it was in a nonviolent method, basically let, you know, the, the blood people know, those, you know, the, the horse raiding will not be tolerated. Early on in the book, you cast a critical eye on Healy. As he deals with the First Nations, though, meeting them, as we mentioned, some of these stories, he eventually, over the course of the book, he learns to respect them. As you mentioned, he adopts that orphan, and he comes to count them as friends. He's still respected today, as you say. You quote would-be biographer of Healy, Tappan Adney, saying, the Indians had found in Healy a new kind of trader. He did not sell them ornaments of tin, saying it was silver. He did not persuade them to buy the gun with the longest possible barrel, telling them the longer the barrel, the farther it would shoot, only to ask payment in sable skins piled to the muzzle. So I found this over the course of Healy's West again, almost to read like a novel, because you're watching this man, this character, evolve and change in his view. And he a way that he never would have if he was still in Ireland, maybe just reading the stories, or he really does change and the native people come to respect him because he is an honest man in the way that he's trading with them. He's not looking to just stick it to them, so to speak, I guess, as many, many traders, of course, still do in our modern world, doesn't matter who you are, right? So that, that must have been a good part of the journey for you to take as a writer. Well, one of the things that was my calculations, and I have to be a little bit careful to not lionize and aggrandize him, and, and some critics have said that I have done that. You know, there is no doubt he did trade liquor, and he traded trade liquor with the natives. And that meant, doesn't mean he was bringing up his finest Kentucky bourbon whiskey. He was, you know, he was trading raw grain alcohol that was diluted, and it was called fire water and also known as whoop-up wallop. And, you know, and that had its effect upon the nations. It had a tendency to, um, you know, basically get people hooked on a drug that would make them want to trade more than they probably should, you know, and in many ways, Healy kind of did beat them for their goods, you know, trading horses and trading things that probably should not have been traded off. So the whiskey traders, you know, do own that part of the history. Having said that, I don't think there's a lot of balance in some of the things that especially some Canadian historians have said. But I think one of the things that I get was I examined trading posts, both with earlier on the earlier trading posts of the Hudson's Bay Company here in the north and, and in Canada, 
and with the American Fur Company in you know Montana and Oregon and and uh, and the Dakotas and other parts of the area, is that when Fort Whoopup came, this is was not a shack. This was a 300 by 300 foot trading post. It was a permanent settlement. This was not an overnight arrangement. When he, he built this fort, he knew he was going to be here for a while. And one of the things that I put the lie to of what some people have said about the whiskey traders of Whoopup is that sense of temporary versus permanent. And that Healy also knew, and the Bloods also knew, that if he was up here to sell rot gut poison, and I'm not going to say there weren't traders that didn't do that, he wouldn't have lasted. He wouldn't have lived. His fort would have been in ashes the first year. That he was successful, and that's sometimes I just have to say the word customers as First Nations people coming to this fort kept it open and kept it in a more permanent basis. It was built for 25000 U.S. dollars, and in his first year, Healy and Hamilton grossed $50,000. They weren't here for a good time. They were going to be here for a long time. And what essentially finally took them out of the business wasn't so much the presence of the Northwest Mounted Police coming to clamp a prohibition down, but it was richer traders, bigger traders, like the IG Baker Company and and Healy's own patron, TC Power Company, who decided that there would have been better money in dealing with government contracts for supplying goods from Montana to Northwest Mounted Police and to the burgeoning industries that were happening in Southern Alberta, the ranching industry, the homesteading industry, railroads, the Treaty Number no. 7, all of these you know, had supply contracts with them and supply contracts worth millions of dollars to Baker and Power. And the last thing they wanted was people like Healy stuck in the middle gumming up the works. And they devalued the prices of their robes and found ways to just cheat Healy and freeze him right out of the business. And they did more to freeze Healy out of Fort Whoop up in 1876 than the Mounties ever did with a prohibition. <laughs> well, it seems like he found a way around anything, pretty much. Sometimes, and sometimes he was his own worst enemy. Sometimes he would, uh, he could open the door and sometimes he walked right into it. <laughs> well, I was surprised how much progress he made in that Bering Strait tunnel. It's uh, interesting to think of what an alternate history would be like oh. where he'd succeeded. He really seemed to go after that late in his life. And that was another time it was cold when he gets up there to Alaska. He's in bad health. He's has cirrhosis of the liver he's suffering from. And yet he's still spinning it that it's just a great place and he's doing really well. And he says in his letters that he's healthy. And of course, the czar has a little uprising there. And so that kind of scuttles the Russian side of the deal. But it's amazing that he got as far as he did. It's just, you said about lionizing him. I mean, he's a He's kind of an imperfect hero, you could say, but still, we we tend to root for those people a little, or at least be fascinated by them. Well, the Siberian Tunnel deal still fascinates me, and I'm almost to the point of where we're reading the documents about the various schemes over the years to build the tunnel connecting Alaska with Siberia via the Bering Strait, the 44-mile tunnel underground is almost like a drug to me. I have to be careful how much I read it because then I become infected. I don't want to do it myself. It's just an amazing thing. This is where the Forrest Gump factor really come in. I mean, suddenly this gumboot trader, this bean peddler, is running around and he's hobnobbing in the courts of the czar and he's talking to Theodore Roosevelt and he's 
fascinating. All the journalists of the country and the railroaders like Harriman and people like that are all over him trying to figure out what this guy's about. And essentially what his deal is, his fascinating deal was, he had this scheme where you were going to be able to uh, get on a train in New York City and you're going to get off it in Paris, France yep. <laughs> by way of going across three continents via the 45-mile tunnel. And, uh, you know, every time I read about the di- little Diomede Islands, it's literally, sometimes I have to, to look at the Diomede Islands and say, gee, I think we owe Sarah Palin an apology. You can see Russia from there. Yeah. <laughs> the international date line runs right between these two Bering Strait Islands. And these would have been the air vents for the tunnel had it gone ahead. It was going to take him, you know, around the early part of the 1900s, $200 million to build this tunnel. You know, it's back when $200 million sounded like a lot of money, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but by the time the thing finally went bankrupt, and it was kind of taken out by the, the uh, Russo-Japanese War and the resultant uh, 1905 Russian Revolution, which uh, made Russia xenophobic, and God knows that would never happen today, um, <laughs> what it ended up doing was it took basically six or eight million dollars out of his capitalization that he had and it was just gone it was lost and it was such an infectious dream healy was out of it but his french partner de lobel even as after healy died de lobel is still sponsoring auto races to try to get across these continents to try to promote this tunnel and i think de lobel died still believing in that tunnel. <laughs> wow there's still a company today out of anchorage alaska and it's kind of a, a Russian-American conglomerate called Interbearing, and they still have dreams of building this tunnel. Well, maybe they'll someday do it. Certainly, when you look at that map as a kid, you just say, if I could squish those two together just a tiny bit, and you can indeed see Alaska from, I mean, you can indeed see Russia from Alaska. And, of course, uh, Tina Fey's joke there about Governor Palin seeing it from her house is what I think people will remember from history. But it is just so close and yet so far away. And to me... The idea that in an age before anything like computers or anything like that giant machine they used to drill the channel, that somebody like Healy would believe in that idea and convince people to back it and really inspire them. It's an amazing idea, and maybe someday we'll all be friendly enough here in North America with Russia again, hopefully, that we'll want to be connected to them via a tunnel and won't have to worry about any security risks to having such a tunnel already built. But and that's the beauty of it. At the time this was going, Russia and the United States were very much looking at each other as a ward against Europe, against the British and against the French. You know, they were looking at themselves as defensive measures against the Japanese, against the people that are now the West's allies. It was a whole different world. And that, of course, the revolution, the communist revolution, of course, had much to do with that. And again, we see Theodore Roosevelt, of course, there. The Nobel Peace Prize that he won was for settling that war between Russia and Japan and having them up there to Maine, Portland, I believe it was, and settling all of that. We could talk about John Healy, of course, and Fort Whoop Up. You have so many great stories. Again, I hope people will go to your blog and check you out there, join your Facebook group about it. But as we reach the end of the trail, I wanted to leave listeners with one final sample of the incredible life that John Healy lived and that they can experience by reading Healy's West. When he remarries, he ends up getting sued for divorce eventually. And there are two women who show up to testify against him in court when his 
wife is alleging infidelity on his part. And that's an amazing story. And I wonder if you could just tell it briefly and leave us with that. Well, essentially, the second wife, and I'm sorry I didn't get to talk about Mary Frances too much, his first wife, because I think she was probably the, uh, the really an amazing lady of the two. But his second wife tended to be a bit of a con artist, and she had kind of conned him into marrying by telling him that she had been previously married to a man who had been put into an insane asylum. And then she told him this man had died in the asylum, and then he would go ahead and marry him, because he was a very strict Catholic. You know, He, he wasn't just going to go willy-nilly into marriage. And as it turned out, she had lied about that. And as soon as that happened, the marriage was over, and by then they were starting to have severe economic problems you know, between them as well, besides, as well as marital problems. And it turned into a very bitter dispute and settled out between courts in New York and I think finally settled out in Cook County in Chicago. But yes, uh, Belle Healy goes off and hires this very sketchy detective. And this sketchy detective, he impersonates people himself. And he goes so far as to uh, find a couple of actresses who he thought would go up and testify as to having dalliances, you know, young young actresses. And as it turned out, they turned into the hostile witnesses against Johnny, turned into hostile witnesses against Belle, because they came along and they said, no, Mr. Healy was a complete gentleman to us. When one of us had gotten injured and couldn't be in the play in New York City, well, he gave us some money to tide me over while my wounds healed and things like that. And he ended up basically turning the actresses back in his favor when the, this private detective had tried to use him as hostile witnesses. So yes, it was quite the scandalous trial. And his final years of finances were just a mess. There was mining deals in Alaska that were leveraged against railroad deals that were leveraged against the tunnel deals. And he had it leveraged against real estate that he may or may not have owned. And it was a complete mess. And I finally had to give up. And I said, I don't think I can sort this <laughs> out. But fortunately, I had Tap and Adney's papers reposited in Dartmouth in uh, New Hampshire. And Dartmouth College was very uh, good enough to send me copies of that, which working way over here in Western Canada was a great boon. And it really helped me out with that last part of the book. So it helped me wrap it up and give Healy kind of the proper send-off into the era. And in his death, and not to give away the ending too much, he ended up basically about as rich as he was when he got off the boat in Ireland. I compare it a lot to uh, John Steinbeck's Red Pony and the old scout in that book, who is so mad because he finally gets to the ocean, he gets to San Francisco, and there's nowhere else to go, there's nowhere else he can go. And I guess that kind of sums up his life, that once the challenges were over, he gave up the ghost. Well, Ranger Gord, I appreciate your time. As people have heard here in Healy's West, you get some corner gas-worthy comedy. You get some law and order-worthy stories of courtroom drama. Really, there's so much in there. There's gun smoke. There's a lot of those old stories that I think we grew up loving fictionalized for a reason and that we still love today in one form or another. This is a great story. I can't thank you enough for introducing me to John J. Healy, and I hope everybody listening will enjoy reading about him too. And when you're ready to pick up your shovel and start digging from Alaska over to Russia, I think you're going to have a lot of people there with you to get their shovels too. <laughs> Just wait till the ground defrosts, you know, wait till it thaws a little bit. Being a Canadian, you should be able to figure that out when that happens, right? 
<laughs> I think we'll take their power drills. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's no fun. We're going to pan for gold while we're up there, too. We're not going to use uh, one of those metal detectors, newfangled things. I'm, I'm going to do a lot of Old West that's, things now. That's exactly what Healy was going to do. He was going to finance <laughs> the tunnel by mining for tin around Nome. <laughs> <laughs> I believe he might have made it work. Thank you again so much. He really is a fascinating character. Thank you very much, Dean. I really appreciate the opportunity. Again, the book is Healy's West, The Life and Times of John J. Healy. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase the book at our website, historyauthor.com. And whether you're north of the border or south of the border, we hope you will click through there. Amazon.com or Amazon.ca gives us a few hunks of hardtack every time you make a purchase through our Amazon link. If you'd like to bookmark it, that would be great. Doesn't cost you anything, and it gives us a little bit of gold dust, just a tiny bit, every time you make a purchase. It's really a great way to help us bring you great authors like Gord Tolton so that you have a new book on your nightstand every week. Once again, thank you to Ranger Gord for doing a unique service to the history of our North American West by sharing this fascinating character with us. Don't forget to follow Gordon at RMRanger on Twitter, join his Facebook group, Ranger Gord's Publications, and check out his blog, rangergordsroundup.wordpress.com. Sorry, I, I know that's not how Alberta Cowboys would have sounded, but I just can't help myself. On our social media side, catch us on Twitter at HistoryDean or at Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor, where you can let me know what you think of the interview and my cowboy impression. Please do be kind. You can also subscribe to our iHeartRadio channel for Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Or subscribe on iTunes, where we hope you'll take a minute to leave us a review. Well, that's it for this week's all-North American episode of the History Author Show. So, until next Monday morning, thanks so much for listening, and happy trails. You still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Thank you for listening to Tales of Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village. This episode was researched and written by historians Farley Wood and Gord Tolton. This podcast is recorded and engineered by Gord Tolton. Episodes can be found at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcatcher. Visit our website at www.kootenaybrown.ca. Kootenay is spelled K-O-O-T-E-N-A-I. Also, visit and join our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more information on our museum or even better, visit us at 1037 Beverly McLaughlin Drive in beautiful Pincher Creek, Alberta.